Good morning, my name is David Cassidy. I'm the lead pastor here at Spanish River Church. Joy to welcome you this morning. If you're new with us today, we are in a 30,000 foot sort of view series of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians living in an ancient city called Ephesus. A group of people, not unlike ourselves, living in a place not unlike where we call home. A seaside place that was filled with people that were coming to faith in Jesus and also learning to live a new life following Jesus in the middle of a culture that was often hostile to that very way of life. Paul is writing in chains. He's writing from prison. But that confinement does not in any way inhibit his celebration of God's goodness to him and to these people. And that's why when he opens this letter, it begins with this remarkable anthem of praise, praising the Father for our adoption as his children and praising the Son for the redemption which we have through his blood and praising the Spirit for the protection that we have sealed in Christ through the powerful Holy Spirit. And then he prays. He prays for that church and he prays that their eyes, the eyes of their heart will be open to see the goodness of God. And then he begins to teach and establish them in the gospel. He tells them the wonder and the amazing, astonishing truth that a relationship with God is not something achieved but a gift received that they are seated with Christ already in heavenly places, that they were dead and they've been brought to life, that they were far from God and have been brought near. And all of this is not because of anything they have done, but because of everything that Christ has done. And he summarizes it this way, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it culminates in this prayer he prays, saying to God, you are the one who can do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could ever ask or imagine. And that's the title of this series, Beyond Imagination, as we recover in fresh ways the wonder and the amazement of what it means that God has saved us in Christ, that he shed abroad the light of his love into our lives and then called us to live a whole new life. Paul begins this letter by establishing these people in the reality that the initiative is wholly with God. He is the one who has taken action in bringing us to himself. He will not allow them to think for a second that a relationship with God is something to be earned or something that they can work for. He says they have not been saved by their works, but they have been saved for good works because they are, in fact, his workmanship. It's a word that was used in the ancient world to describe a remarkable poem. You are God's poetry, he says to them. You are written into this world to show to this culture my beauty and the splendor of my love the riches of my grace and my mercy. I'm going to shower that into your lives and I'm going to show it through the way that you live. When I was a child, we didn't just gather around the piano to sing hymns with my mom. She would sit us down and read us poems as well. And one of the first poems I ever heard and learned was Robert Frost's The Road Less Taken. And so uh, he 
he writes in there about these two roads that diverge in the wood, and he's faced with the choice about which way he will go. And he says, I I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. What Paul comes to in this letter, in this section that we're in now, is this road less traveled. He describes living for Jesus, being his workmanship, his poetry in the world, as a walk that we are on. And what he describes is a lifestyle. And it's completely and utterly, as we looked at last week, different from And in many ways, contrary to the grain of everything that's going on in our society. Ephesus was, of course, a city that was part of the Roman Empire and had a mixed Jewish-Gentile population. But from a religious standpoint, among the Gentiles, it was also the home of the great temple of Diana, Artemis. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world, and she was a fertility goddess, And so sexual orgies were part of the worship that took place at the temple of Diana. You became one with that God by having sexual relationships with one of the temple prostitutes. It turned out to be a very popular religion. (laughs) And all of these Christians that Paul is writing to, that's their, if you will, church background. And now they're in Christ. And they're called in the middle of this culture which is deeply contrary to the way in which they have learned of Jesus. He says, and we looked at this last week, you've learned Jesus. You've put off the old. You've put on the new. And he describes it as putting on this robe of splendor and glory. So as they walk through the streets of Ephesus, people go look at that fashion statement. That person has on a robe of righteousness. And now he begins to describe what that looks like as they take the road that most of the people in Ephesus aren't taking. And he describes it as a walk that's marked by three things, love and light and wisdom. And I want you to notice those as we read this somewhat lengthy passage here, these first 21 verses in Ephesians chapter 5. Follow along with me, Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, Paul writes, there's, there's, this is where he is in this text. He's talking, now you're, you're grounded in Christ, you're seated in Christ, God has acted, you're justified, you're his, that's unchanging. Now, here's how you live on the basis of what he's done. Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. Please notice that all of these things are tied up with this notion of idolatry. Has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you. With empty words, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them, for at one time 
You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The whole of Ephesians can be summed up there in that verse. At one time you were darkness, but now, all right, that's God's intervention. This is how you're living now. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. It is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul there quoting an ancient Christian hymn. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, that's debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another, or speaking to one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So I just want you to notice here how Paul describes this lifestyle of a person who is in Christ. Somebody who was dead and has been brought from death to life. Somebody who was in the grave and is now seated with Christ in heavenly places. And notice that he says that when you're avoiding certain things and embracing other things, he, this is a life which he says is befitting of saints. Saints is a word which is used to describe you. And this is who you are now. He calls us saints. That's how he begins the letter. To the saints, the holy ones, the faithful in Christ who are in Ephesus. Sainthood is not something you achieve in the end. It's your identity right now. And so if that's who you are now, then this means that you and I have set before us a whole new pathway, a whole new way to live in this life. And it's hallmark, first of all, is a life of love. Now, this life of love is set in stark contrast to two things that are part of the culture of Ephesus that Paul highlights here, immorality and greed. Both of these were key characteristics of that culture. The immorality of that age, and this word that he uses here is a blanket term. It covers all kinds, every aspect of immorality, whether it was in the temple or something more private and personal, whether it was heterosexual or homosexual, every single form of immorality is in view here. And Paul says these things are not characteristic of the kingdom of God. They are, in fact, something which is destructive. But then he goes on to say that so is covetousness, and it all comes as an idol. Greed is flowing from idolatry. Now, of course, you've got that temple of Diana there, so that's pretty easy to see. And so someone could say, well, you know, here in beautiful downtown Boca, we don't have any idols. We're an idol-free zone. 
I haven't noticed any statues of any gods or goddesses that we bow down to. But you have to remember what those images represented. Diana was a fertility goddess. There were other gods and goddesses to which people bowed down. Political power in the form of an emperor who was called a god. Military power, economic power, sexual power. Thankfully today, people don't worship economic and political power. They don't worship sexuality and they don't worship money. I'm so glad that is not an issue for anybody today. Oh wait. Now you see, I have to tell you, I've been a pastor now for Uh, 41 years, and I've heard people come into my office and confess to me basically every single sin imaginable, every single one of the great catalog of vices that you could could ever name. They sit down and say, Pastor, i got to tell you what's going on. And you weep with them, and you, you see Christ come and move in their lives. And I've seen every single sin confessed except one. No one in 41 years, has ever come into my office and said, Pastor, you got to pray with me. I'm overwhelmed. I'm overcome. My heart is filled with greed. No one has ever come into my office and confessed the sin of greed. Now, there's a reason for this. The reason for this, of course, is because nobody is suffering from it. <laughs> right? Uh, no. No. Actually, here's the thing. We're more aware of the problematic, deadly nature of some sins than others. And the sin of greed, which is an idol that says to us, it's this idol. Here, let me tell you what this idol says. This idol stands in front of you and always says, but wait, there's more. That's what that idol says. It is this seductive voice, this whisper, and behind it is a hiss that says, if you just had this, then your life would be whole. If you're single today, it will tell you if you were just married, your life would be whole. But the same hissing spirit says to the married, if you just had her or him, then your life would be whole. If you just had this house, or that career, if you just had this instead of what you have, then your life would be made whole. Now you see, there's nothing wrong with a spouse. There's nothing wrong with sex. There's nothing in any way wrong with a beautiful car or any other possession. There's nothing intrinsically wrong in those things. An idol is something that substitutes itself for God in your heart and in your eyes. It sets itself up as an alternative beauty The demands of your heart, your highest affection, so that you are energized towards that and you give your life towards that and it's lying to you the whole time saying, if you will just pursue me, you will have life. St. Augustine long ago compared love to gravity. He said, my weight is my love. Now the physics majors among us know that You define weight in terms of the force of gravity, which is exerted by a particular object downwards. And Augustine is aware of that. He says, whatever you love is a weight, a gravitational pull that is drawing you after it. 
And what Paul says here in this text is that if you walk in love the way Jesus loved, the Jesus kind of love, it's going to be set in direct contrast to the idolatry of the age. Jesus was not a God saying, you must do this to please me, and then I will bless you. No, Jesus comes and lays his life down for us. He sacrifices himself for us. Every other God demanded a sacrifice. God in the Bible said, I will become the sacrifice. He laid down his life for you. So love does not look upon another. Christian love does not look upon another to take or to view other people as a utility from which you can derive pleasure. Christian love is rooted in this, the beauty of Jesus so that our hearts are gravitationally pulled towards him and then in sacrifice that we make for one another. Here's how Augustine wrote about it in his confessions. Listen to this. I came to love you too late, O oh beauty, so ancient and so new. Yes, I came to love you too late. What did I know? You were inside me, and I was out of my mind looking for you. I drove, I, I drove like an ugly madman against the beautiful things and beings that you made. You were, in fact, inside me, but I was not inside you. Those same things kept me at some distance from you, even though those things, had they not been inside you, would not have existed at all. You called to me and cried to me. You broke through my deafness. You uncovered your beaming light, and you threw that light in my direction, and you healed my blindness. You blew your fragrant aroma upon me. I breathed in that breath, and then I desired you. I tasted you, and now I want you the way I want food and water. You touched me, and I have been burning for you ever since. That's a man who has seen the beauty, the astonishing wonder, the beyond-imagination beauty of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus to you this morning simply a figure from history that you know about is he perhaps just a religious teacher that you come to in some way learn from at a sunday worship gathering or is he the god who has come to you and breathed his life upon you and made you his own and shown you his light and he has become so beautiful so desirable so compelling in your soul that all other loves become lesser loves and you live for him. This is what it means to follow Jesus. You see, every temptation that we face, every idol that demands our attention is pushed to one side when we see the beauty and the wonder of who Jesus is. And when you see him, then your soul finds its satisfaction. Augustine would write, our hearts were made for you and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. But then Paul goes on to say that this love, this life of love, which is shaped by 
the person who laid down his life for us, who sacrificed himself, a pleasing aroma to God, in chapter five there, verses one and two, a pleasing aroma, he laid down his life, he became the sacrifice, he did not come to you and say, sacrifice yourself for me, he came and he said, I will sacrifice myself for you, I will give my life for you and to you, I will fill your heart, and you will find in me the end of every single desire that you have, This Savior then calls you to live in the world as light. He says, you were, but now you are children of light. You were in the darkness, but now you are in the light. And he puts it this way. Wake up, O sleeper. Come alive in the light. Wake up, O sleeper. He compares it to waking up in the morning. Now, I don't know when you wake up in the morning. I'm I'm, I'm an early morning get up and go person. Now, that doesn't mean that when, I mean, when I, you know, it's five o'clock and I'm, I'm up, but that, I don't wake up up. I wake up uh, kind of looking like, you know, Mr. Magoo. Man, I'm just, what? I'm, I'm looking, I, I, there are two things I say when I wake up in the morning. The first thing I say is the words of the prodigal, I will arise and go to my father. And the second thing I say is I will arise and go to the coffee. And I, I am, I'm looking, and, and where I live, there's, there's no little light. I can't, there's no little light in my kitchen to show where the coffee is. So I always look for the little red light that says the coffee machine is on. Where is the coffee? The light that we have when we wake up in Jesus is a blazing sun. And then he turns to us and he says, you are in fact the light of the world. And that is a light that is beaming into the darkness of anger, the darkness of division, the darkness of hatred. Dr. Martin Luther King said, hate cannot cast out hate. Only love can do that. Darkness cannot cast out darkness. Only light can do that. But this is why John's gospel says that Jesus was the true light coming into the world, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not stop it. And when Paul says here that you are children of light, he's reminding them that God is not only love, God is love, he's also reminding them that God is light in whom there is no darkness at all, And you and I are not people that have light in ourselves. We have a reflected light, which is from God. God is light, shines his glory into our hearts, and then shines that splendor through us to other people. You and I become those people upon whom God's light shines so that through us God's light will shine in this world. And that's why that love is so important. And that's why this final issue is so critical, too. You see, we're called to walk in wisdom. But what does wisdom look like? Look what it says here in verse 18. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Now, when you hear a word like wisdom, what do you think of? You probably think of a really high ACT score. You think of intellectual ability, but that's not what Paul has in mind. That's not the wisdom of God. The wisdom that Christians walk with is a cruciform wisdom. It's shaped like a cross. Anthropologists tell us that civilization begins to emerge in history when they notice the skeletal remains of people that had a broken femur that healed. You go, wow, 
Pastor, that's really obscure. What, what are you saying? We see in the, in the ancient world, and you know what a femur is. It's that long bone that runs between your knee and your hip. If somebody broke a femur, they couldn't work anymore. And they couldn't walk anymore. They were of no utilitarian value to the group of people that they're with. And they were left behind to die. But at a certain point, people begin to look at someone who is of no utilitarian value, who can't walk and can't work, and they look at that person and say, we will carry you and we will do your work until you are well. What is it in the human race that says, I will stop and I will bring my ability to your disability? I will give my life for your life. You see, human beings are made in the image of God. We are by nature children of wrath. Sin has wrecked its ravages through us, but we are still made in God's image. We have aspects of who God is that are still shining in our lives. And when we are brought from death to life, these are magnified in our lives, and they are brought alive through Jesus Christ and his example in our lives. And these Im this image-bearing of God is something that finds its supreme example in Jesus in what the Bible calls the cross, which is, listen to this, the wisdom of God. Paul calls Christ crucified the wisdom of God. What does wisdom look like? Well, for many people, it looks like intellectual sophistication. But Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he says, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit. Now, natural man. You go, what, what do you think of when you see a phrase like natural man? You probably imagine a guy in blue jeans and a t-shirt sitting in the back of a pickup with a Bud Light. There's natural man. There's old natural man there. That's not what the word meant in the ancient world. Natural man, the natural man was actually culturally sophisticated man. Man at the zenith of his intellectual vigor and accomplishment. Somebody who was well-versed. And what Paul is saying is that humankind at the apex of its intellectual vigor and goodness does not get this wisdom. And not only do Humans not get it on their own, neither do the dark powers. Because if the powers existed had understood the wisdom of God, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. What does wisdom look like for the Christian? Wisdom looks like a cross. The cross. That's not what wisdom looks like to the world. What does love look like to the world? It's the secular creed. Love is love. But for the Christian, love is not love. God is love. What defines love is not my desire because my desires may be illicit. My desires may be badly directed. My desires may be for ends that are illegitimate and will lead me over the cliff to hell itself. You say, yeah, but you be you, baby. Love is love. But wait a minute, what if God is love? And how love is defined is by the being of God who becomes the sacrifice. And that's what light looks like in the darkness. And wisdom, it turns out, is not an intellectual sophistication, but a crucifixion. 
a man hanging between heaven and earth, bleeding and dying, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's not the wisdom of this age. The wisdom of this age is do unto others before they do unto you. Get them. Get to the top, no matter what. Trample on everybody you have to. Get ahead, achieve, acquire. But then here comes this man hanging on a cross and says, here is wisdom. I will bleed and I will suffer and I will die and I will give my life for your life because your femur and heart are broken and I will work when you cannot work and I will carry you when you cannot walk. And though you are sinful and hate me, though you are my enemy, I will love you and give my life for you and I will love you to life. I will free you. And he hung on the cross and he did that. And the Bible calls that the wisdom of God. And that's the path we're called to live on in this world. What does it look like? <laughs> in 1995, a Polish man named Francis Kaszanacek died. He was 93 years old. He died in his bed, surrounded by his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren. When he died, he died with a tattoo on his arm that was a number. It was number 5659. Because he'd been a prisoner at Auschwitz. The death camp just outside Krakow in Poland. I was there a couple of years ago. The ground zero of evil in the 20th century where a million and more perished. He had been a soldier in the Polish army. Overrun by the Nazis, he was in prison in Auschwitz where he surely would have died. One morning, a prisoner escaped. The commandant of the camp demanded the death of 10 prisoners to pay for the escape of the one. So all the prisoners were assembled and 10 men were selected and among them were Francis Kaszanacek. And he began to cry out, no, 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 not me. I have a wife, I have children, please have mercy on me. And as he stood there, on the, falling to his knees, crying for mercy, a weakened figure of a man raised his hand. Prisoner 16670. And he said, I will take his place. And they grabbed him and they let Francis Kachanacek live. And that man took his place. Prisoner 16670. And the way they killed the men was by putting them in a cell underground where they would have neither food nor water until they died. It usually took 10 days. And all those men were hustled underground. I've stood in the cell where it all happened. And in the center of that cell is a tall, beautiful candle that commemorates the man who raised his hand and said, I'll take your place. His name was Father Maximilian Kolbe, a Roman Catholic priest, who said, I'll take your place. What leads any person to say, for someone he doesn't even know, 
I will take your place. A Savior who said, I will take your place. And that's what light in the darkness, in a hellhole like Auschwitz, in a dungeon cell, a candlestick lit in the night, looks like. That's what love, not lust, love that sacrifices itself looks like. That's what wisdom, the kind of wisdom this world cannot possess, looks like. In the middle of hell, it's heaven. I'll take your place. All the people there died. He prayed for them all through. They came down at the end of 10 days. He was still alive. It was like nothing could kill him. And they gave him a lethal injection to finish him off. The church exists in the world not to dominate the world, not to attack the world, but to tell it the spectacular good news that answers the bad news of our estate into which we've fallen, the tragedy of our brokenness and our pain and our hard treason against God, that God loved us and gave himself for us and said, my life for your life, I will take your place. And he said that, not to people who adored him, but to people who hated him. When we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And so we have a question today. We have to take the road less, less traveled. Will you do it? You say, Pastor, I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't raise my hand and say, I'll take your place. I, I have too many lusts, too many inordinate desires, too many disordered desires. The beauty of Jesus, how do I choose that? I can't. Hear me. You're right. That's why this section ends this way. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. What did you sing a few minutes ago? It's your breath. Whose breath? Your breath in our lungs. Breath, spirit, wind, same word. The only way to live this life, the only way to walk this path is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can't do it in your own ability. That's why Paul doesn't say you were filled with the Spirit. The Greek is a present continuous tense, be being filled with the Spirit. Go on being filled with the Spirit. In other words, the only way you can walk in love, the only way you can walk in light, the only way you can walk in this kind of wisdom is if the Holy Spirit fills you. And that's why the greatest need of every Christian here in this place today is to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that the rest of this week we show people the love of God, not the lusts of our heart. We show people the light of God, rather than the darkness of despair. And we show people the wisdom of a cross, rather than our intellectual sophistication. That isn't all that bright anyway. And the only way we can do that, friends, is through the Holy Spirit. So this morning, I want to ask you, if you haven't yet met Jesus and seen his beauty, I want you to receive him. And if you have, I want you to say, Lord, Put the wind in my sails. Put your breath in my lungs. Fill me so I can follow. Because the only way you could follow along this path here in this world is to be filled with the Spirit who's from above. Amen. Let's stand together.
Gracious Lord, how we long for your breath to fill our lungs. We need you, Lord. If you want to pray for God just to fill you with the Holy Spirit right where you are right now, you may have never prayed that prayer. Paul didn't say you were filled with the Spirit. He said to people who had been filled with the Spirit, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, being filled with the Spirit is the ongoing need and experience of the believer. Just say, Lord, fill me. Lord, I need your breath in my lungs. I'm all out of gas here, Lord. I need you. Fill me up, Lord. Fill me with your Spirit, Lord. I want to be filled with you, Lord, so that I can love as you loved. I can show your light in this dark world. I can have the wisdom of the cross. And if you need Jesus today, right now in your own words, in your own heart, you listen to me, let God listen to you now. Use your words. Tell Jesus, Jesus, I need you. I really need you. Lord of love and light, the only wise God, the one who looked upon our high treason and did not judge us but saved us. Lord, you who raised your hand and said, Father, I'll give my life for theirs. I'll go into the pit. I'll go into the hell of their despair and the hell of their sin and rescue them from everlasting judgment. Lord Jesus, you who give the spirit of life, we praise you. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Fill us. Cause us to show in this world. Be the church in the world that shows the love of God and the light of heaven and the wisdom of the cross. And we pray it in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Amen.